from the yesteryear of comic book publishing. You can hear us every week on the Weird Science DC Comics.com podcast feed. That would be on Sunday mornings. You can get us through iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and echoing through the Speed Force, which is a... Force, 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 There force, you go. Force. With a little hint of the book we're going to read today. It was requested by a friend of the podcast and of uh, us, uh, Brian Trevitt, mm-hmm. uh, Afrin Addict on Twitter, I believe. I think and so. We're going to read Flash Volume 2, Number Zero from October 1994, titled Flashing Back. Written by Mark Wade, art by Mike Waringo. Am I going to say that wrong? I think I usually say, I, I think I usually put Weringo. Weringo? Uh, I, I feel like I, it's, I don't, yeah. Weringo <laughs> sure. or Weringo? I'm going to go with. We'll just call him Ringo. <laughs> it's going to devolve into Ringo down the line. And Jose Marzan Jr., uh, on sale date is August 16th, 1994. Cover price is $1.50. Yeah, and it's even got a little nice little foily kind of a kind of a logo, and it still kept the price at a buck fifty. Wow, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. The, the cover is uh, you know nothing to write home about, but anyway, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but it has that zero hour flair to oh, it. Oh yeah. Um, now, before we get into the comic, like we usually do, we're going to talk about the creative team. We're going to start with uh, Mr. Mark Wade, a very very great writer, uh, born uh, March twenty first, nineteen sixty two, in Hueytown, Alabama. Uh, he was a ferocious, a ferocious. <laughs> he's a ferocious. Yes, he was. He was feral. <laughs> he was foaming at the mouth to read Superman. Now he was a, a voracious reader at an early age. Uh, he cites uh, 1966. His father brought home Batman issue 180, which was a cover date of May that year. Story is called Death Knocks Three Times. On the uh, ceiling, if you want me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is the first issue out after the debut of uh, the Dozier uh, Batman 66 TV show starring Adam West. Um, Mark was captivated by this comic book, and he began collecting at the ripe old age of... Three. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, I, I don't know if that's just a uh, know, convenient rem- memory there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when the family moved to Birmingham, he would go with his father to uh, the radio newsstand, which is probably just a newsstand yep. with the sign that said "radio" on top of it. Uh, the newsstand had a wall of comic books, which became Mark's four-color library. He. Uh, he, it's weird because he uh, he never faced some things that a lot of longtime comic fans had. He never stopped collecting. Yep. He didn't he didn't stop when he got older. He didn't stop when he does discovered girls. He didn't stop. Period. He must have had a hell wow. of an allowance, this guy. Let me tell you. <laughs> I figure. Right? <laughs> now, uh, before becoming a teenager, Mark used to read every comic book two times consecutively. Then he would copy its pertinent information and a description of the story onto a 3x5 index card and file it away. Nerd alert. Mm -hmm. This is, by the way, why he wins pretty much every Silver Age trivia thing. Because he owns it. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) he basically made, you know, studied notes of it his whole life or something. Uh, But his teenage life was a little tumultuous, and he fought frequently with his parents, and he often spent long stretches of time crashing at friends' houses. 
1979, Mark, Mark watched Superman the movie, and he found this a life-changing experience, sat through the movie twice in a row and left with a strong belief in heroism. He Did says, any three by five index cards after that? I don't know. I don't Maybe he was past <laughs> that, but uh, he did say that seeing Superman the movie changed my life in a fundamental and profound way and gave me a North Star that I followed ever since. What he basically says is his impression was that Superman was a person that cared about anybody, even mm -hmm. lowly Mark Wade. <laughs> uh, Mark dreamed of working in comics, but didn't think he wrote or, or wrote or drew well enough to qualify. So he attended the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. That's a good school for journalism. But he stopped pursuing journalism when it dawned on me in about the first week and a half that I'd never, ever have what it takes to stand in front of a grieving widow and stick a microphone into her face. That was a quote, of course. Takes a special kind. It does. You know, you really have to have a blackened heart to be able to do that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, changed his major a few times, eventually settling on English with a minor in physics, but he didn't actually graduate. He's shy three credits as of 2009 due to a German class. After college, he found work for Amazing Heroes and Comics Buyer's Guide, which were industry magazines of the time. Yeah, they were the big ones. Um, now, in 1984, DC editor Sal Amendola did a cross-country talent search. At this point, Mark was living in Dallas, and he spoke with Amendola, who was looking for story pitches. It's funny, Mark asked him which characters hadn't been pitched yet. And, I mean, we're going when, when is this, 1984? Mm -hmm. Nobody had pitched a Superman story. Yeah, we got Sal's crazy. reply here. Yeah, he says, you know, of all the pitches I've gotten so far, no one's pitched a Superman story. Everyone wants to write Batman. Nobody's tried for Superman. And the editor, Julie Schwartz, is actively looking for eight-page stories. Uh, now, Mark, he already knew Julie through uh, Amazing Heroes. And he was, uh, he was about to head to New York for the first time, and he was able to set up an in-person meeting with Julie. Got a quote from Mark here. He says, I offered him an eight-pager in which Superman goes to his Arctic fortress, only to find it's been stripped bare. Someone has burgled a joint, but who and why? Schwartz picked up the story. This is Mark's uh, first prof professional comics work in uh, Action Comics number 572, October 1985. The, book, the, the, the story was called Puzzle of the Purloined Fortress. The following year, Wade pitched, quote-unquote, thousands of stories. But yeah. hearing how Wade is, I, it, it doesn't sound like it's uh, too much of an exaggeration. It, it, it literally could be, yeah. <laughs> I just you know, I just wanted to make sure that that's his claim, not ours. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's only three a day. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Schwartz bought one, and it was heavily edited by him and his assistant editor, uh, e, uh, e. Nelson Bridwell. Uh, and thus, the freelance writing, uh, comic book writing career was put on hold. Yeah, so in 1986, Mark moved to Los Angeles to work for Fanagraphics as an editor. His first task on his first day was to fire the guy he was replacing who had no idea that it was coming. Isn't that nice? Nice way to enter a company. <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, by spring of 1987, Mark was packaging and editing his own magazine, Comics Week. It was an industry t news tabloid that was printed at roughly the size of a military parachute, with, but with more hot air, says Mark Wade. It lasted five issues, but it did launch the career of industry critic Sidney Melton, also author of a satirical comic, Thunderskull, uh, number one, which came out in 1989. A DC Comics publisher, Jeanette Kahn, did notice Comics Week and thought he might be a good fit for their brand new imprint, Piranha Press, which we talked about on a episode long, not too long ago, really. Uh, yeah. We put together an episode about Piranha and Paradox, I believe. Mm -hmm. That fell through, but he was hired on as an associate editor at age 25 by Dick Giordano, moved from L.A. to New York for this, his dream job. 
His first two days consisted of erasing pencil lines on Green Arrow number one, uh, which I think is pretty funny. But someone yes. had to someone had to do it. Sure. Uh, back then, no one does it now. For two years, he primarily edited Secret Origins and made a lot of contacts, but he was fired by 1990. He also edited, incidentally, uh, Batman Gotham by Gaslight, which kicked off the Elseworlds imprint, for whatever that is worth. Mm -hmm. After this, he became a regular freelance writer for DC Comics, and his first work consisted of uh, for DC's short-lived Impact Comics. Do you remember this, Chris, at all? I do. I do. I, do. I remember it, too. I remember being a little excited about it and then not being as excited as they came out. Uh, yeah. But he wrote uh, the comic and scripted dialogue for Legend of the Shield. These were the MLJ Archie Comics heroes bought by DC that they tried to make a go of, and some of them have somehow reverted back to Archie. We'll yeah. learn about that some other day, folks. We don't know the details. <laughs> in 1992, Wade was hired by editor Brian Augustin to write The Flash, and that brings us to today. Yes. Uh, we got Mike Waringo, the artist here. He was born June 24th, 1963 in Vincenza, Vincenza Italy. Uh, his parents were uh, Cecil and Shirley Dean Waringo. He also has a brother named Matt, uh, a comic book illustrator in his own right. Uh, Mike became interested in comics through his father, who was an avid reader. He began drawing comics when he was 11. He studied fashion illustration at Virginia Commonwealth University, which is the same college as Mark Wade. Yeah. Uh, though he began to uh, consider drawing comics as a profession, showed his artwork at comics conventions during his college years. Uh, now, Waringo took samples to the 1992 San Diego Comic-Con, which is not like the San Diego Comic-Con today. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> Much smaller, cozier affair back then. Yes, yes, and I think he actually found a couple of comic books there, well, too. I, I, I bet that year, though, because that that's the Death of Superman That's the Death year, of right? Superman so year. That, that was, they and Image Watch. Yeah, they, they probably thought this was as big as the thing was going to get, and it was still Certainly. like a, a few thousand people, I bet. It was nothing. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a, it was a little, uh, it was a, the hotel lobby. Yeah. <laughs> Comparatively. Yeah. Um, now, uh, he met uh, DC Comics Group editor of Creative Services, uh, Neil Posner, and he showed uh, he showed him his, his wares. Uh, he was eventually given his first work, which was a story in Justice League Quarterly number 11, which was June 1993. And now that was followed by a second JLQ in issue number 12. Now, soon after graduating, he determined that the field was dying out. Yeah. <laughs> Which We've heard been that doing before. He's yeah. been doing that for about 80 years. Yeah. And uh, he instead pursued commercial illustration, which is probably a wise move for a lot of folks. Um, now, realizing that he did not possess the fortitude for commercial illustration, he came on back to draw comics. Uh, the Flash editor, Brian Augustine, uh, asked Waringo to try out for The Flash. After submitting some pages, he became the he, he became the artist for Flesh Volume Two. Yep, this very uh, volume we're going to talk about now. Mm -hmm. To talk about this book, uh, we got to talk as briefly as we can about Zero Hour Crisis in Time, which is this. I got is, about forty-five pages. Let's go. I know. Yeah, we, this is tied <laughs> into that, and it's I, I, you know I'll go behind the curtain here and say that we were originally going to kind of talk about Zero Hour and put this in there, but Zero Hour is a huge subject and a huge a beast. pretty complex story with a lot of moving parts really good story and we are going to go over that next sunday on weird comics history it's going to be a fairly long episode about uh zero hour crisis in time but for the purposes of just talking about this issue of the flash uh we it suffice to say it was a five book event published by dc comics in 1994 with several tie-in issues uh, Hal Jordan, now infused with the fear entity Parallax and possessing incredible power, seeks to destroy reality and remake it, um, really because he wants to save Coast City 
that have been destroyed by Cyborg Superman in the Death of Superman storyline. It's big, folks, let me tell you. But that's, he essentially, he's, he's the main bad guy in, in Zero Hour that wants to destroy time and restart it. Uh, this creates time fluctuations which affect the DC Universe in the form of tie-in issues and other weird anomalies that happen around the universe. Multiple Batmen, people change costume, you know, uh, people show up out of nowhere. Come back from the dead, yeah. Exactly, and this is one of those very tie-in issues. Yes, Flash number zero, October 1994. Flashing back, written by the folks we just talked about, Mark Wade, uh, art by Mike Waringo, and Jose Masson Jr. Uh, let's see here. We pick up with the Flash. He uh, he outran his costume, uh, and he enters uh, what we're going to assume is the Speed Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, this scene spins directly out of an early scene in Zero Hour Crisis in Time number four, in which, at the prompting of Wave Rider and Rip Hunter, Wally West attempted to use his super speed to close a rift of entropy, which probably makes absolutely no sense, because even even saying it out loud now, I'm like, eh? Even reading <laughs> the issue doesn't make a ton of sense. So he, has to, he has to run away from it and then run back towards it. He's got to double back. We yep. don't really know, but whatever. Yes, uh, so he, uh, they say, uh, there's a there's a video, the, the Zero Hour promotional video, where they say, uh, you know, if it's a crisis, it's time to throw another flash on the fire. Yeah, so that's what they, <laughs> they did that right here. Um, now, while he is swept into the Speed Force, he is, uh, he's not, no longer in his, you know, recognizable costume. He's got, like, this odd skin-tight, kind of, like, body stocking. Yeah. Which, uh, depending on the version you got, either looks very red or looks... Flesh color. Yeah, I want to mention, and I'm gonna send you. Yeah. A, I'm gonna send you a screenshot later. I, I I meant to do it this morning and I forgot. But uh, yeah, in in Chris's version, he has the print copy and it looks just like a red bodysuit. In my mm-hmm. copy, it looks downright like uh skin toned. Like it's yeah. It, you have to see it because it's kind of gross. And uh, <laughs> slim and good body. The first the first time you see him in this costume, you see him. It's kind of a crotch shot. He's falling away from you, so you're kind of looking up at yep. him. And when I first looked at it, and I'm going to send this page to you after this, but it, it looks like you're like, is he a Ken doll? Like, what, you know yes. what I mean? And like, uh, where did his toes on his feet go? There's, there's nothing there. So it's, it, it looked funnier to me. But uh, yeah, if you got the print copy, it should look weird, but still, you know, more normal than what I got. It makes it makes you think that the uh, the Speed Force ran through the extreme and awesome universes. Possibly, yeah. That, I mean, that's what I was thinking. I was like, they're, <laughs> they're trying to be extreme, but they can't, you know, show too much. So they, I don't know. Weird. Now, now Wally, he you know he goes through the uh, Speed Force here, and he arrives in Keystone City. Finally, uh, it's the same year, 1994, but a few weeks earlier than the events of Zero Hour. We got Wally here. He's in an incorporeal state that is to say he, he can't interact with the surroundings he's he can't be seen uh, he can't speak so he's really you know kind of out of time here uh he winds up in a mass of humanity on a city street they're watching the flash as he battles a crew of geeks called team turmoil uh this scene might take place in an or around flash volume 2 number 86 cover date january 1994 yeah i wondered that if he was actually picking up an actual i, I you know mark wade it probably was I'm guessing, I'm yeah, because I, I did find that Team Turmoil did appear in that issue, so I'm, I'm assuming that that's probably what we were picking up from. Yeah. And Team Turmoil, just to say, they're pretty much a generic team of villains, not really a whole lot yeah. to say about them. Uh, the battle yeah. ensues in front of a department store, though, called Novix, a reference to classic Flash artist Irv Novik. Now, the Flash, not the zero-hour one in the bodysuit, but the one that actually is fighting the... Uh, 
this is going to be tough tough to get to explain but he the is, one, is going to be yeah, yeah uh he easily takes <laughs> down the baddies and he delivers numerous high-speed punches to the oafish one and redirects a plume of noxious, noxious gas back at a female member he also noinks a rodent-faced one off a nearby building we don't need to know their names, folks. He, he takes care of them. It's, everything is fine. That's, yeah. Uh, Flash gives a statement to a news reporter, Linda Park. It appears he may have been fighting these fools to protect a man wearing a turban. As you should. As you should. Sure. Uh, around the corner, another tur- turmoiler takes aim and fires <laughs> off three blasts in the turbaned man's direction. Wally catches the bullets and takes the jerk out. And it's pretty cool here because, uh, like, the zero hour Wally is actually watching all this. Yeah. And he's kind of narrating it. He's giving us, like, a play by play. I thought that was pretty cool. He's I mean, even, like, like, chastising him. He's like, stop, yeah. stop hot dogging here, you know? Yeah, like, like you're going to break your wrist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was like, it kind of gives you a glimpse into what might be going on in his. It's also sort of like a, even though he's only a little bit, you know, in the future from yeah. this point, but a little wiser of a Wally, I guess, going through the Speed Force sure. to do that to you. Uh, Zero Hour Wally thinks on how much he loves his job as the Flash. He thinks back to a visit he'd received from a mystery man during his youth and a promise he had made. Back in the quote-unquote present, which is really the past, but uh, (laughs) Flash and Linda make out while Zero Wally stares daggers. For some reason, I don't really know why. Like, like come on, you know that's 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 you, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's... literally, you 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 are that guy just in the past. So it's, that's fine, you know. No but cheating. But he's staring at him like yeah. he's like really ticked off, right? He's he's probably looking at past him. He's like, you think you look so hot? I looked that good like four <laughs> months ago or whatever it is, you know? Yes. Now, uh, Wally notices from the corner of his eye, Max Mercury. <laughs> this is crazy. He's peeking out of an alley like some person. I know. It really is kind of like <laughs> creepy as hell. Like, what are you doing here, dude? And uh, Wally approaches Max, calling out to him, even though he's still, you know, transparent. It isn't clear whether or not Max can see or communicate with him, but that point quickly becomes moot. I mean, Wally, Wally... Wally says he can, but he doesn't seem to actually react. He doesn't like direct. He doesn't like even make eye contact. It, it's strange. It really is strange. I, I I was a little confused, but whatever. It does, like you say, it doesn't matter really quickly. No, no. So Wally is whisked back into the Speed Force. Uh, he, you know, we get a little bit of a Wally refresher here. His travels take us down memory lane. We see him holding Barry Allen's Flash costume following the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths. We also see him hanging with the original Teen Titans. Next stop on our tour is Barry Allen's back room on a particular summer day. He stands there as Barry the Flash and young Wally enter the room. Barry is explaining how he became the Flash while setting a shelf of chemicals up. Yeah. On the wall to match exactly how they were laid out the day that he was struck by lightning. I mean, it's like, come on, dude. You know, I, you literally, <laughs> this sort of verges on child abuse. Uh, young Wally says, Wow, that's so cool. I wish something like that could happen to me. Because so really, who wouldn't want to be hit by lightning? Barry replies, Ha ha, sorry, Wally. It was a fluke. A billion to one chance. And then we have uh, old Wally in caption goes, Yeah, right. Make that a billion to two. Mm. Now, at this point, lightning strikes twice, and young Wally is bathed in toxic chemical soup, much to his glee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Zero Wally at this point has a fleeting moment in which he becomes solid. And at this point, he wonders if perhaps there might have been something more to that particular bolt of lightning. Maybe it shows him. Hmm. Now, Zero Wally watches his younger self and Barry go out on a run. It's brief because 
back to the speed force with you wallet yeah he keeps getting they keep pulling him back in he tries to get out they keep pulling him back in mm -hmm. by the way i do really like the way this uh there's a scene you know it's it's barry and wally running side by side and you know old wally is watching it and there's a scene where they kind of take off and uh ringo does it as a bunch of lines and the way it's colored it's really simple but effective is all i'm saying i like it a lot yeah. uh, i thought it looked cool so now we're going to take a travel through Wally's childhood with a focus on his parents and their relationship with one another and with Wally himself. And it's pretty cliche, and it's unfortunate because in the pre-crisis, uh, his parents were very supportive and very normal and not like most uh, comic book superheroes' yeah. parents. Uh, you know, for one thing, they were alive. For, for another thing, they didn't like, they weren't abusive. Uh, but here they do seem, you know, they don't, it doesn't seem like his home life is a nightmare. No, but they no, just unpleasant. A little neglectful, and and his dad is a little bit of a is a handsy, loudmouth. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be making qualifiers for uh, how chills. Anyway, uh, so uh, while his dad is a lech and his mom throughout his Flash comic, uh, issue number 163 from 1966, by the way, one of my favorite covers. Stop. Mm -hmm. Stop. Uh, if you save my life, read this comic or whatever it is. Yeah. And uh, they argue a lot. Like, uh, I think they were the only parents to ever have done that at the time. Uh, yeah, and he reflects on his promise that, to the mystery man. Uh, he reflects on that, that that he made to him. Wally emerges from the Speed Force about 10 years before Zero Hour, and he's at the West Family Reunion at his childhood home in Blue Valley, Nebraska. Salute! Yeah. Uh, he's back to being solid for some reason, so he grabs a pair of dungarees from the line as to not turn his aunt on it's really creepy yeah. but okay <laughs> yeah we get uh we get wally here he goes i'm fluxing solid again what, what was that fluxing like like the flux oh oh like the flux capacitor all right yeah yeah, yeah yeah uh yeah the, no go ahead <laughs> sorry. good news though if that's the case then i'm definitely underdressed for this crowd Better catch at least some jeans before Aunt Charlotte, the, the divorcee, decides she digs the undertights. Mm, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. guess, I guess really she wouldn't know that he's his older, her older nephew. Maybe. But still. Well, maybe she wouldn't care. I mean, you know, I don't know. I know, know. I'm speaking like a, like, like, like a real deep Southern. It's fine the where they're at. That's no big deal. Anyway, it's all right. <laughs> that, that wasn't right. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, young Wally is also at the shindig, and get this—he gets—he gets distracted by a rabbit while he's pouring himself an off-brand soda. Weird. Okay. <laughs> he's like, "Ooh, a rabbit!" Pours yeah. the soda. He overfills the cup, spilling suds all over the picnic table. So his father comes over and tans his hide for it. Well, I say let the punishment fit the crime. I think that was certain. You know, don't be, don't be spying rabbits, son. You pour that yes. soda carefully. How many times do I have to tell you? That stuff ain't cheap. Uh, now, young Wally's eyes well up, and he charges into the house. Zero Wally realizes that this is the day that the mystery man visited him. Hmm, I think are you starting to figure this out yet? There might be some connection to the, well, the old Wally and the mystery man. I wonder. Now, Zero Wally follows his younger self into the house and eventually into his childhood bedroom. I think uh, this kid might like the Flash a little bit. You know, a little I mean, bit. A little this, bit. this goes this goes into what I would call obsessive collecting. You gotta you gotta let a kid branch their interests out a little bit at this point. <laughs> <laughs> He's got himself some, uh, I mean, the Flash should have like a restraining order, I think, at this point. I, I, at least uh, have a, a poster with another hero. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like all yeah, Flash all the time with this guy. <laughs> now, uh, Zero Wally enters and he glances in the mirror. It becomes clear to him that 
get this, he was the mystery man. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, the pair have a heart-to-heart while young Wally doodles on his Star Trek letterhead notepad. Uh, Zero Wally goes, tell me, Wally, what do you want to be when you grow up? Dad says if my grades are good, I can work at the plant. Well, that wasn't a question. What do you want to be? Oh, just silly stuff. Now, young Wally, he's a pretty fearless kid. I figured yeah. my first question to a grown man hanging out in my bedroom would be, hey, why is there a grown man hanging out in my bedroom? Yeah, I, I despite the fact that he says he looks like a relative, I still would be a little weirded out, you know? And these big rel- these big family functions, it doesn't mean you know everybody. You know? No! I got news for you, you know what I mean? Just because just they're the same blood doesn't mean that you can necessarily trust yourself to be alone with them, but... He might be from, the like, the Los Angeles West exactly. or the Florida West. <laughs> exactly. You don't know these people. You don't, you don't these see people. them ever. But uh, he's a trusting kid, I guess, and he hands sure. his notepad over to the elder and has a drawing of the Flash. Uh, well, we'll kind of get into what it is, because yeah. what else was he going to draw? Yeah, that's pretty much his, his whole life is about the Flash. Older Wally begins doodling himself, and he draws. And as he draws, he promises his younger self that if he sticks to his dream, dreams, every single one will come true. So I'm guessing that the New 52 was not a stop on the Speed Force tour, right? Well, you don't know. Maybe one of his dreams was to destroy to the not exist. and not exist <laughs> and to erase his existence. That's all. You know, it's fine. Uh, he hands the boy back the pad, and he's added a drawing of Kid Flash, which we think is next to the Young Wally's version of Kid Flash. When when mm-hmm. that when that character, I just wanted to briefly, you know, when that character first came out, uh, it was Wally West got hit by the same lightning bolt. Uh, same chemicals bathed on him and wore the exact a smaller version of the exact same costume for a, a little while a few issues as i remember yeah. it, the least creative superhero origin you could possibly come up you know what i mean literally the same thing just smaller yeah. that's all they did so uh yeah he's say i think wally's saying you know you know this is a better costume kid when you uh, feel like it you want to <laughs> let your hair flow yes so, older Wally, he leaves the house with a re- renewed confidence, though still with questions about Barry and his past and Max and his future. He re-enters the Speed Force and heads back home. Yes, he now has the the self-assuredness to control the Speed Force, or at least a little bit. Yeah. So, after this, Wally runs back to the present to warn everyone about the effects of Zero Hour, but only his costume shows up. Uh, assuming Wally's been absorbed into the Speed Force like Barry Allen was in The Crisis on Infinite Earths, Wally's futuristic pro- protege, Impulse, takes over the title for a while, but we'll get more into that next week. Yeah, as well as where who Impulse is and really, you know, how the costume got there, It's there's more to yeah. it. Now we're going to close out our uh, creators here. A lot of stuff to say about Mr. Mark Wade. Uh, mm-hmm. He had quite a career, and I'm not even going to really come close to naming all of the works he's done, but I think I've highlighted some of his big moments and some of his most infamous quotes because he is pretty outspoken fella, as, uh, as we know. So um, yes. he stayed on The Flash for an eight-year run, which is quite beloved and is actually being collected now in trade, if anyone has interest. Then, though Mark and Mike Weringo co-created Bart, Bart Allen, a.k.a. Impulse, Impulse was launched into his own series in April 1995 by Wade and artist Humberto Ramos. Mark's first major project for Marvel Comics was one of the writers of the Age of Apocalypse crossover. He later co-created the Onslaught character with Andy Kubert for the X-Men line. 
Marvel editors Ralph Macchio and Mark Grunewald hired him as Grunewald's successor as writer of Captain America, during which Wade was paired with artist Ron Garney. This was a really a critically loved and fan-beloved yeah. run. Uh, it ended when Heroes Reborn happened. That would have been the uh, Rob Liefeld <laughs> booby Captain America that we know so well. <laughs> Rob Liefeld did offer Wade the opportunity to script Captain America over plots and artwork by the studio, but Wade declined, probably saw the proposed cover and was like, nah, I think I'm going to yeah. stay I'll away pass. from <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wade and Garney did return to the title for another relaunch series, Captain America Volume 3, Issues 1 to 23. Famously, he left after butting heads with editorial over the content of issue number 14. This was a story focusing on Red Skull, and changes were made to some of the verbiage used, which could be seen as lessening their impact. He states, this is a Mark Wade quote, Despite what the error of having my name on the cover might imply, the contents of Captain America number 14 aren't my work. The majority of the image descriptions and many of the early captions are my writing, but weeks after my story received approval from Marvel's editor-in-chief, and after the book was subsequently lettered, colored, read, and approved by several editors, separated and made ready to print, this is the old days of print, folks, you had to do mm -hmm. all this stuff, uh, that same editor-in-chief decided, as within his rights, yet despite previous approvals, to have the story completely altered and substantially rewritten, dropping entire sequences and pages and assigning several other pages to staffers to read dialogue from scratch. As a result, what was printed isn't even close to, my, to the story I set out to tell, nor was I asked for input in any of the alterations made. It is this was uh, this would be uh, Bob Harris was yeah. the uh, editor in chief at this point. Yeah, and you will you will find that they no, there's no love lost between them going down <laughs> the line either. Uh, it is absolutely within Marvel's editorial right to make any and all changes to work for hire as they see fit, and I in no way challenge that right. They buy it; it's theirs to do with as they wish, with or without my input. It's upsetting and warrants the removal of my name only when Marvel's editors renege renege on prior. Approvals without warning and do so while delivering to me a lecture as if I'd done Marvel an injustice by writing an approved story Instead of even the vaguest hint of apology regret to leave my name on a story no longer mine cheats the readers and cheats me Hence my insistence at distancing myself from the final printed version forth with Gentlemen, mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I added those last two <laughs> Marvel removed his name from the credits, however, but ne they neglected to take the cover, uh, his name off the cover. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, uh, it's a fairly identifiable issue. It's the, the entire cover is the Red Skull's face. So oh, it's, uh, I've seen that. Cover you'll know before. it if you see it. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, going back in time just a hair, here we got a uh, 1996. Wade and artist Alex Ross pre, uh, they pre produced the graphic novel that some people might have heard of. It's called Kingdom Come. Uh, pretty big deal. <laughs> and uh, Wade would go ahead and write the follow-up, which was The Kingdom, which was a strange story where, what was it, where Gog went back in time, like, daily to kill Superman every single day yep. or something like that? Yeah, very, it was, very it interesting. Really, it was interesting, but I think they had they had definitely run out the... Uh... The bloom had come off the road. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure, by that time. <laughs> now, uh, DC Comics writer and executive Paul Levitz, he said, uh, Wade's deep knowledge of the hero's past served him well. And Ross's unique painted style made a powerful statement about the reality of the world they built. Uh, now we're going to talk about a pitch. It's a uh, pitch that comes with a lot of lore. Uh, yeah. This is uh, October 6, 1998. This is the Superman 2000 pitch. And we're only going to mention that because of Wade's involvement, and we're probably, this will probably never come up again. Yeah, this, this will probably serve as our Wade bio, I think. So this yeah. is the only time we'll be talking about it. 
Now, Wade, along with writers Grant Morrison, uh, Tom Paya, and Mark Miller, offered up a pitch to DC to revamp Superman. Notice, notice, no, the, the, uh, noting that of late, there had been a reimagining of the character just about every 15 years. Uh, 15 years before this was Burns' Man of Steel. 15 years before that was Denny O'Neill's Kryptonite Nevermore. Um, Superman's power and int- we have some bullet points about what was in this pitch because the pitch was actually like 25 pages. It's a it's a hell of a pitch. Wow. Um, so we're just going to do some bullets here. We got here, uh, Superman's power and intelligence would return to his pre-crisis levels, or at least closer to them, uh, on account of having spent so many years absorbing yellow solar energy. So it would stand to reason that the longer he's absorbing it, the more powerful he'll be. Makes sense. Um, Clark Kent becomes more of a mask for Superman. So this is, uh, this goes back to like the, uh, George Reeves story, you know, the George Reeves opening where it's, uh, you know, disguised as Clark Kent. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's so, he's Superman playing Clark Kent, primarily. not the other way yeah. around, which is just another way to look at the character. Sure. Uh, there's going to be a new fortress of solitude, which, uh, shows Superman returning to hit, like kind of being a scientist. A lot of the pre-crisis stories, he's got like these amazing chemistry sets Oh yeah. and he's able to deduce, you know, just so many different scientific discoveries. Uh, and he also has, he's also more of a collector here. He's got many trophies it's almost like the bat cave where he's got uh I, I, one of the things that stuck out to me in the pitch was that they're gonna have they were gonna have a uh, a voice a voice balloon of mixoplick or mixius piddlick backwards oh so you could always just play it you know yeah so you send them <laughs> so back that, there you go that would work uh, pretty neat um, i mean really really what this is is mark wade returning superman to the silver, silver. age it's essentially yeah. what the idea was Yes. Uh, now, Lex Luthor would be revealed to be more than meets the eye, much more than meets the eye. Uh, Lex Luthor was, uh, quote-unquote, Lex Luthor was basically going to be a secret identity of sorts. And uh, Lex Corp was just going to be one of the thousand things he attends to every day. So he was going to be much uh, deeper a character, much more nefarious, wow. much more brilliant. Hmm. Uh, Superman's villains, uh, you know, in addition to Lex, would be reimagined. I think uh, the... Uh, opening story that they had planned it was going to have uh brainiac and luther against superman and mixias pitalik oh wow uh, yeah doing having a little uneasy alliance here uh the lois and clark marriage would go away that was part of the original pitch um and lois of course would no longer know the secret um they later altered that to have lois move to a position of foreign correspondent to separate the two <laughs> which uh, you know, Superman got to fly pretty quick, right? Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, really, where where can't he reach on Earth in a second? I mean, you know what exactly. I mean? Like, how, where's she going anyway? Uh, Jonathan Kent dies, so Martha is widowed. We have a quote here saying, Superman needs a little bit of tragedy here. Okay. If you say so. <laughs> now, the Daily Planet, this is a sign of the times here. They're no longer just a newspaper. They're more of an internet presence at this point. Mm. Uh, we get our trunkless costume, finally. And uh, the pitch did say, quote-unquote, red underpants, which makes me wonder why we hate comics so much sometimes. Really? I know. We might as well just wear underoos, for gosh sakes. You know, yeah, there's that show now. Um, I think it's on NBC. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, like, it's about normal people in the DC universe. Oh, Powerless, yeah. I saw, that's I saw the, the first that's two the episodes, yeah. Okay, as I see, like, ton, it's commercials for it all the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the commercials is, like, a girl saying, it's a bird, it's a plane. And another guy next to her goes, you can't tell the difference between a bird and a plane? It's like, just shut the hell up. Know, oh, we get a, it. Comics are stupid. Give we get me a it. break. You know, hey, listen, yeah. when they're high up in the sky, you can't tell. You know what I mean? Like, sure enough. Give I mean, me a break. And it's, anyway. just, it's just a callback. You don't got to be dicks about it. Um, also, the triangle numbering would go away. So each uh, each Superman title would basically uh, have their own ongoing storylines. This was to avoid, you know, say, Grant Morrison of 
being stuck writing part three of every story. Yeah, and and as I remember, it had kind of started to unravel a little bit. It about ran this its time. course. Yeah, yeah, it was getting a little. Di- it, at one time, it was like a really finely honed. Oh, it was thing, excellent. Yeah. But it it had kind of yeah, it kind of fallen off the rails a little. So. Uh, now, waiting another and writer Grant Morrison collaborated on another uh, project that was to successfully reestablish Justice League to prominence. Wade wrote Year One as well as chunks of the regular JLA series and also developed the concept of hypertime with Morrison. So you can blame. Yeah, I think he he also did Midsummer Nightmare, right? That uh that fed into JLA. That's right. Yeah, they yeah. They, they had set it up to reestablish the original. You know the the yeah the, the Magnificent Seven, seven. exactly. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, as a matter of fact, Wade didn't even write a ton of it. Graham Morrison wrote a lot of it. Wade wrote a lot of it. Yeah, little... Wade took over. He Wade took, took over an issue. He didn't even write that long, something. right? He wrote like a year. Uh, maybe a year. Yeah, maybe so, a year. And then Joe uh, Kelly came in. Which was a, it was a good run. And that whole run is really it was. good. Uh, worth checking out. But you can blame uh, Wade partly for coming up with Hypertime and confusing the heck out of us every time. I they... still don't know what Hypertime is. It's Don't worry about it. You don't need some, I think it's related to Hypercolor t-shirts. <laughs> you so, had to push your hand on Yeah, something like that. I think it was heat sensitive. Uh, Wade was barred from working for Marvel for a time in 2000 after writing some disparaging comments about Bob Harris on a message board. Hmm. To CBR, Mark commented, yeah, that's at least temporarily true. Apparently, the fact that Bob was fired for unfair and wrong reasons one September rather than for all the tens of hundreds of right reasons he'd racked up in the seven years previous gave a lot of staffers a sudden change of heart. Amazing. Overnight, they forgot what a two-faced, cowardly liar Bob had been and what crap they'd all had to suffer through because of his shortcomings as a manager. Instead, everyone was lighting candles for Bob. (laughs) Jesus, you want to know the truth? In my humble (coughs) opinion... Bob did as much to help destroy the comic book industry during the 1990s than any other single human being alive. Yes, even more than Garib. I'd even let Ron Perlman out of hell before I'd pardon Bob. For and that years, Garib was uh, Garib is Garib Seamus, yeah. the guy behind Wizard Magazine. Yeah, that was he was he, that. One day, folks, the direct. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll talk about <laughs> it. The big, big story. For years and years and years, the editorial philosophy at Marvel was to make each and every comic book as labyrinthine and confusing as creatively possible. Marvel had the single highest profile comic book in the Western Hemisphere, X-Men, and Bob did everything imaginable to make it completely incomprehensible and inaccessible to new and or casual readers. Everything. But Mark, I hear the whine. But Mark, Bob kept the X-Books bestsellers in the industry during his tenure. Technically true, but let's look at the sales figures. Over the last six years, the sales margin between the X-Books and their nearest competitors has dwindled from about 3 to 1 to barely 1.5 to 1. Woohoo! Cigars, everyone. Here it is in a nutshell. Did you see, did you see that stupefyingly atrocious piece of crap X-Men sampler comic and TV guide? My rage had no words. It was a textbook example of how not to write and draw something as as a, a prospective first-time reader could possibly understand or enjoy or want to see more of. Hell, I've been reading comics for 34 years, and then I had to read it three times to figure out what was going on. <laughs> TV Guide. Eight million households. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for new market exposure, and everyone connected with it failed miserably. Fire them. Fire them all. We're dying here. We cannot afford to blow any opportunity to find new readers. Mm-hmm. So I think he had an opinion. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. He, he kind of rides the fence, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he bites his tongue quite a bit. Now, we discussed that uh, X-Men sampler in our uh, You Decide episode That's of right. Weird Comics History, which, yeah, uh, yeah that was uh, not too long ago. 
Um, moving on with Wade. In 2000, Wade wrote a series called uh, Empire with Barry Kitson. It was originally published by Guerrilla Comics. So that was a uh, an imprint of Image formed by Kurt Busiek, Tom Grummet, Stuart Eminen, Carl Kiesel or Kessel, mm-hmm. Barry Kitson, uh, George Perez, Mark Wade, and Mike Waringo. Uh, the imprint, imprint folded uh, after only two issues were uh, published. Um, Empire was completed under the DC Comics label in 2003 and 2004. Uh, since then, the rights have reverted back to Wade and Kitson. That was in uh, 2014. Uh, it was also announced at that time that the series would return under Wade's own uh, thrill-bent imprint, which, is that through Boom? I don't think so. I think that's actually like his own. Uh, maybe maybe the print comics are through Boom, and his digital is is his own deal. His own deal, but because was that like where like incorruptible and all, like those. I, I, uh... That's what makes me think that yeah, you might be right. Like you can yeah. you get incorruptible digitally from Thrillbent, but you can buy the but comic. Print is through Boom. I, I'm not positive, but I wouldn't be surprised. I I can't remember seeing what the you know publisher was, but that I would guess that that's right. Sure. Um, now, Wade, uh, he began an acclaimed run as writer on Marvel's Fantastic Four. This was in 2002, also with artist Mike Waringo. Hey, the uh, dynamic yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, Marvel released their debut issue, which is Fantastic Four, Volume 3, Number 60. Uh, this was October 2002, at the promotional price of just nine cents. Mm. It was to uh, undercut the uh, Batman 10-cent adventure, if yeah. I remember correctly. <laughs> you were telling me about this. We talked about this, and I was like... Why even charge? Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> exactly. Just give it away. It's almost spiteful at that point to want nine cents, but whatever. And it, it's, it is the highest selling issue of Fantastic Four ever. Hey, then so go, yeah. publishers, take heed. Drop your prices to 10 cents or sell them hand over fist. I think maybe. <laughs> now, by uh, June 2003, Marvel publisher Bill Jamis, we talked about him before, mm. uh, he tried to convince Wade to abandon his uh, quote unquote high adventure approach to the series and uh, making the book into uh, what Wade. Wade called a wacky suburban dramedy where Reed's a nutty professor who creates amazing but impractical inventions. Sue is the office temp breadwinner, uh, and the the cranky neighbor is their new arch enemy. Stuff like that, mm-hmm. which oh, I'm sure that'd have been great. It does. Right? It really sounds like a Jemis idea, though. You know what I mean? It see, does. Right? Seeing the stuff that he wrote, I really I can see it. Yeah, this is <laughs> like I, they they lived in Marville, probably. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> oh, now. <laughs> After uh, some discussion with editor Tom Brevoort, Wade found a way to make the uh, requested changes, but by then the decision had been made by Vice President Bill Jemis to fire Wade and Ringo from the series. Years later, Mark had this to say, Brevoort and I were just gobsmacked by this, just speechless, and there was no arguing with Bill. He wanted the mundane four because they'd be more relatable, but... He was the boss, and Marvel owns the characters, not me. So we actually took a stab at trying to give Bill what we thought he wanted without destroying the FF. We planned a story arc in which Reed had been forced to brainwash the entire family, including himself, into this basic scenario for reasons I forget. (laughs) It was actually a pretty elegant workaround. I can't remember the details, but I promise it was better than it sounds. But Bill decreed it was too little too late. Three days later was too late, by the way. And one Friday... Poor Brevert called me to tell me that I didn't have to bother with the next script because Bill had already written it himself and had dropped it on his desk. Wow. <laughs> I'd love to read that. I was fired. I'd never been fired off an assignment before. I was stunned. Artist Mike Waringo was asked if he'd stick around, but in a gesture, I thanked him for it till the day he died. He told Jimis to take a hike. Uh, now, there was a 
big outcry online. I can uh, imagine, yeah. Yeah, huge backlash that actually worked. Wade and Ringo were reinstated on the title by that September. That I don't even think they missed an issue. Oh, really? They, the, yeah. But did the one issue with Jemison's script come out? Did, did you see I don't that think was supposed so. to be? I don't think it even happened, right? I don't think it did. Wow. The, I'd love to see it. <laughs> the internet works. Yeah, I really would like to see that. I, I am kind of interested to see a kind of a, a cornball suburban, uh, you know, sitcom Fantastic for them. But, but uh, yeah, we'll... Uh, that's on the shelf for now. I guess you know what probably came close to that was probably the Vision comic that just came out. I bet. But anyway, that's uh, postulating on my part. So in two thousand three, Wade wrote the origin of the modern Superman with Superman Birthright art by Lenil Lenil Francis Yu. This was the standing origin for the Man of Steel for a whole three years. Jeff Johnson sold his secret origin, which wiped it away. But Birthright was picked up partially for uh, Man of Steel movie elements of it. Yeah. Uh, Wade uh, was returning to writing. R- Wade returned to writing Legion of Superheroes in September 2004 again with Barry Kitson. He'd actually been editor writer for Le- uh, Legion of Superheroes in the 80s, finishing the run with issue number 30, July 2007. Mark had also been writing the Victorian detective story Ruse for Cross Gen Comics, which went bankrupt in 2004. He had this to say in 2009, cross-gen publisher Mark Alessi was a spoiled eight-year-old with a checkbook, and he was the biggest bully I'd ever met in my life, and coming from a lifelong comic book geek, that's one hell of an indictment. I could make a fortune charging his employees for post-traumatic stress syndrome therapy. He would, and I'm not joking, make admittedly spineless grown men stand in the corner when they displeased him. He'd punish guys who drew perfectly well without his help by focusing on some detail or another on one of 22 pages. Some face that somehow wasn't exactly what he saw in his head, whatever the hell that was, by berating them at the top of his lungs and then sending them home for the day. And don't come back until you can draw it right. Cross-gen is an interesting subject. Uh, this Alessi, uh, in, there's a term in pro wrestling when uh, somebody wants to book a show and they really have no... They've got no knowledge of the industry. They call them money marks because, uh-huh. like, the guys can see them. It's like, ooh, there's a checkbook. So let's get them involved here. Alessi just seems like the like a big comic money mark. Yeah. And uh, these uh, these guys, they would all have to sign exclusive contracts, and uh, or or at least partially exclusive, or if that's even a thing. But I, I know a lot of them were under exclusive contracts, mm. and they worked in an office. They oh, wow. all worked in an office. It was very weird. I, I remember a lot of this was in a uh, was covered in Wizard around the time. That's a, um, that's a, so that's who you easily berate them. You know, basically, yeah, he, you know. he's standing right there. He he can't tell them to sit in the sit in the corner of their home. Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> <laughs> these were spineless men. Now, in 2005, Wade would sign a two-year exclusive contract with DC Comics. This is it, it seemed like uh, it was like sports teams for a little while. It's like. People going exclusive weekly yeah. uh, in these uh, in the news reports here, which is like uh, happening now too. You know, it seems to be. It, it is starting to make a comeback, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, now he co-wrote the 52 limited series with Grant Morrison, Jeff Johns, Greg Rucka, and uh, Keith Giffen. Years later, Mark would say of 52. The big, the biggest challenge of 52 was actually wisely kept from us by editor Steve Wacker, EIC Dan DiDio, who first championed the concept. Hated what we were doing. H-A-T-E-D, 52. He would storm up and down the halls telling everyone how much he hated it. And Steve, God bless him, kept us out of the loop on that particular drama. Editor Mar- Michael Siglane, having less seniority, was less able to do so. 
And there's one issue of 52 near the end that was written almost totally by Dan and Keith Giffen because none of the writers could plot it to Dan's satisfaction, which was and is his prerogative as EIC. But man, there's little more demoralizing than taking the ball down to the one-yard line and then being benched by the guy who kept referring to Countdown as... 52 done right yeah and uh, it's worth, <laughs> i know we won't, we won't if anybody's read this. that it's not a good countdown was awful countdown is a complete mess i mean you know 52 yeah. it, it was a weekly series and one of its hallmarks is that it's fairly tightly it's concisely you know plotted as it far is. as like it you know the story goes along and you can follow it week to week and you know things that you saw two weeks ago come up a little bit later, but it's not like they drag things out from three months ago. You know what I mean? Like they, it seems to have a real, it's it's well put together. Uh, it's great, yeah. It's also worth saying that uh, Stephen Wacker was an editor at DC who was a senior editor, like they say, he'd been working there since the late '90s. And in the middle of this, Marvel signed him. He he got pinched, yeah. Po- yeah, basically poached him in the middle of '52. So it was uh, finished out by another editor who I think it would have been his assistant. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's why it became yeah, more that towards the end. Yeah. Now, after this, he did a short run on Brave in the Ball with George Perez and returned to The Flash for six issues. He says, once I committed to the project and we'd solicited the first issue before even one script was finished, every single promise that had been made to me to get me back aboard was reneged upon. So integrity and backbone demanded that I quit on principle before the first issue even came out. The only and this sounds familiar to me. This sounds like another time in DC's history, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, the the only reason I stayed six I stayed six was because of my loyalty to the editor who didn't deserve to get screwed. And Wade fairly well stopped working for DC at this point. He would dry up totally around two thousand seven. Yeah, because this flesh was actually a continuation of the volume that we discussed earlier. This is volume two. They. Uh... They had canceled it for Infinite Crisis when uh, Bart Allen actually took over. Yeah. I think it was supposed to be permanently, uh, but it didn't go too well. And after about a dozen issues of that, it got canceled, and they brought back the legacy numbering of Volume 2, and they brought back Mark Wade. Um, the run was—you uh, could see that there's a lot of fingers in this run. Yeah. Because, uh, it's when they introduced the children, the Jai and right, right. Iris. And uh, the stories became—they didn't feel like Wade stories. Um, yeah, I, I seem to recall knowing that as a as a supremely complicated run. It just gets it, it kind of goes, goes crazy yeah. towards the end, and you don't know what's what's what. But yeah, and it, it only ran for a bit because uh, because you know they wanted to bring Barry back. Mm-hmm. So that didn't go too long. Um, now he began his series Irredeemable for Boom Comics, where he would uh, become the editor in chief in 2007. Then he would go up to chief creative officer in 2010, and then he would step down from that four months later to go back into freelance writing. So his his love is clearly in the writing. Yeah. Um, he started to up his digital-only site, Thrillbent.com, in 2012, beginning with the follow-up to Irredeemable, titled Insufferable. Uh, to, a quish, to a question from Chris Sims as to why he was doing digital comics, Mark replied, I'm not posting. I'm not positing that print should just die or go away. I am saying, as I've been saying, as I have been for over a year, that unless you say Brian Vaughn or Bendis or someone who has already proven to comic shops that you can move non-superhero fare, print first, create own floppies and graphic novels are a huge risk. And I hate him for saying floppies. <laughs> really, really do. And I hate him for making me say it in the quote. Um, it's okay. <laughs> it won't be a mark against you. Don't worry. Okay. Okay, printing prices are a gargantuan bite of your budget at a typical direct market print run, even for big-name creators. 
Even to print through image as a creator, you have to be willing to work for back-end money or to fund staggering initial costs. There's no way for me or anyone with less than a track record than I do to launch two or three new creator-owned books into the marketplace as it is right now, especially non-cape material and not go bankrupt by issue three. Yeah, that was sort of his cause celeb was that digital, and and he would later go on essentially to imply that digital was going to usurp print, and you know he has a lot of pertinent things to say, but he has a lot. Sure. He had a lot of high high-minded ideas, as we learned in 2003 after fam- 2013 after famously having addressed the crowd at the 2010 Harvey Awards about digital comics replacing print. Mark walked back those comics and said comments and said several years ago at a conference for comic book publishers and industry stalwarts when Comicsology was still an upstart and iPads were still a toy, I came out aggressively against the old ways. I wasn't the first to do so, but I am loud. I rallied hard that we should be all be turning our attention to the emerging digital market and that as an industry we couldn't continue to be held hostage by our only significant print distributor, America's eighteen hundred maybe comic specialty stores. I argued that tablets and smartphones were the new newsstand, the new outreach tool. As the vast majority of publishers and retailers turned on me for preaching heresy and descended upon me like a fat kid on a chocolate cake, I maintained that the old ways were doomed to die more quickly than we could imagine and that the future of the comics medium hinged on digital distribution. And you know what? I was wrong. In all honesty, the old ways weren't doomed. Had you told me three years ago that comic sales in America would be up by significant numbers when all other forms of print media were shedding readers at a brutal pace, I'd have been the one to call you a heretic. Yet here we are. Yes, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, actually, before we go on here, that's a, that's an interesting comment, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, you know, uh, people, not everyone knows this, but I work in book publishing, not comic books, but this the, the same kind of things have been said in book publishing for years, but it hasn't worked that way. 2016 was actually a huge year for print publishing. For print, yeah. Uh, ebooks plateaued and kind of dipped a little bit. I think that in the inexorable crush of time, um, it will be, you know, digital will replace paper, but it's going to be, it could be hundreds of years, you know what I mean? Like, we're, mm-hmm. we're talking about a real, a, it's not going to be if someone flipped a switch. Uh, for one thing, people got to get the hardware it's got to become something everyone can have and you know affordable but it's it's interesting you know there's so many i i I would have said years ago um that the mass market would take over all of print publishing that there'd be no more hardbacks not really a lot of paperbacks and mass market was one of the first things to die and Mm -hmm. it was because ebooks are like a better way to carry those things around so uh, yeah, Mark, uh, you know, he, he took a stab in the dark and he, he failed. What can you say? It seemed like the digital, uh, that revolution that came was kind of like a novelty mm-hmm. rather than anything. Because I, like, like we are saying, I, I don't think everyone's there yet. So <laughs> absolutely, maybe, maybe one day. I, there's also a thing where, you know, uh, it's just a more pleasant experience to read books and comic books for the most part on paper it's it's nicer Absolutely. on your eyes you get to regard a page at once you know what i mean it's it's easier you can actually hold your your space if you have to go do something you don't have to mm-hmm. like you know uh, run around and try to find your your page again uh unless you're like me and you just kind of throw it down and try to figure it out later but that's another story um yeah it's uh it, it is a better experience but uh i do think that i mean i think it's just a matter of supply and cost of production but i'm talking yeah. 
over a, a series of decades. You know, there was something, if every, uh, you know, ebook or comic book was interactive, where, say, you come up upon a character you don't know, and you press and their you can name. And get their who's who, yeah. And you get, you know, maybe we're talking about something that could be really taken over, but what it is now is just the PDF on a laptop or a tablet, you know, so there's nothing to it, really. Oh, that'd be a fantastic idea. Yeah. Um, now, moving on. Beginning around 2007, like we said earlier, Mark Waid stopped working for DC Comics over increasing editorial problems, uh, primarily with Mr. DiDio. Uh He moved over to Marvel, writing acclaimed runs of Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and Daredevil. He currently writes Black Widow and the Champions for Marvel. Uh, he also writes Archie uh, since the uh, new, uh, you know, the revamp Archie, yep. uh, and another follow-up to Irredeemable called Insufferable that comes out from Boom and is on Thrillbent.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's face it, Mark can pretty much write whatever he wants, and he uh, probably won't be writing for DC anytime soon because. His friend and ours, Bob Harris, is the editor in chief, and yeah. Dan DiDio still looms large. And Dan DiDio is still there, but I think yeah, I think Harris is the complete. I think both of them are basically keep him from working there, but Harris is the absolute yeah. deal breaker. Whereas yeah, I, it's, it's one and one A. Yeah, <laughs> they would. Uh, you know, he might find a workaround with Dan, but not with Bob Harris. So, no. uh, which is too bad because I really do think Mark. I, you know, what he, what he's writing for Marvel is great. I love his Black Widow. I loved his Daredevil a lot. Uh, hmm. And I think he's got a real feel for them, but I I will always see him as a DC guy. I think that's oh, hundred percent. I really yeah. think that's his wheelhouse. I think he has the truest like love and feeling for the characters, and I think he could do great work there today, if only it could be, but it can't. <laughs> no, and it's weird because he you know, he has clearly a love for the Silver Age, but it doesn't handcuff him. No, it doesn't. He's actually he's he's able to like tell a modern story. Not even, not even invoking Silver Age sensibilities, but you know the love is there. It's he's a very talented. Writer, he, very talented. he seems to bring in a certain sense of joy to a lot of his comics. Not all of Absolutely. them. For example, Absolutely. Irredeemable, for example, is kind of a dark comic, although it has its very moments. much. But yeah. you know, so he's not he's not only just the happy superhero guy, but he does tend to bring a, a sense of comic book joy that I think really comes out of the Silver Age in a big way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know he's he's a good writer. That's all. And and as we showed, you know he had his opportunities to be editor in chief at Boom. He had his opportunities to work wherever CCO, he wants. Yep. He could do yeah. He could do whatever he wants. Uh, he could probably be editor in chief at Marvel if he really wanted to jockey for that position. But I think sure. he loves he loves the creative side of it. He'd rather stay as a writer. And, and I we're think, happy with that. I think we're better off for it. That's <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, now we're gonna wrap up. Uh, Mike Waringo. Uh, he rose to prominence off his work on The Flash, and he followed this with a short run on Robin. That was another DC title with writer Chuck Dixon, while concurrently penciling Marvel Comics Rogue 1 through 4, January, April 1995. Penciled The Spider Boy number 1, April 1996. That was a one shot that combined Spider Man and Superboy as part of the Amalgam Comics crossover between Marvel and DC. Yes, this really did happen, folks. Mm. Uh, and, and Chris wrote about it on his uh, blog, so go check it out. Uh, Waringo became uh, the regular artist on Marvel's The Sensational Spider-Man, beginning with issue number 8, September 96, teaming with writer Todd DeZago. Waringo's next major product was at Image Comics, where he reteamed with DeZago on the creator-owned fantasy series Telos. This ran for 10 issues, May 99 to November 2000, and no... Not the stupid character from DC's Convergence event. Uh, this is totally, It's a coming-of-age adventure set in a magical pirate-themed world. The last three issues were released by Guerrilla Comics, which we mentioned earlier. 
Where Ringo returned to DC Comics for all but one issue, Adventures of Superman, number 592 to 600, July 2001 to March 2002, with writer Joe Casey. He returned to Marvel and reunited with Mar writer Mark Waid on Fantastic Four, which we talked about, uh, beginning with number 60. That was the famous nine-cent issue, uh, where Ringo eventually drew 27 issues of Waid's 36 issues, wrapping up their run with number 524, by which time the previously relaunched series had returned to its original numbering. Confused yet? I know, really. Newsarama.com commented that the Wade Waringo run was perhaps best known for fan outcry that we talked about before when Marvel announced it was going to replace the team. They reversed the decision and the two completed their run in the series. Yeah, and he would go on to pencil the interior art on issues 1 through 5 and 8 through 10 of Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. That was the uh, Peter David uh, series there. Mm. And uh, he was the cover artist of issues 1 through 19. These were cover dated December of 05 to June of 07. He and writer Jeff Parker began work on the miniseries Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four in April of uh, 2007. Unfortunately, later that year, uh, Michael Ringo passed away of aortic dissection. Wow. This was August 12th, 2007, at his home in Durham, North Carolina. I remember that because I, I had just gotten out of the hospital for something that day, and I got home and I saw that on one of the news sites. It was uh, Yeah, and I'm sure you went, why not me? I, you know, at that point in time, I probably might have felt too that far off. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, at the time of his death, uh, he had uh, completed seven pages of a what-if story featuring the temporary replacement Fantastic Four. This was the new Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Wolverine, Hulk, and Ghost Rider. They had originally been assembled in a three-part Fantastic Four storyline in 1990. This was issues 347 through 349, which featured some fantastic art by Art Adams. Uh, Marvel uh, Comics, that uh, they donated the script and Waringo's art to the Hero Initiative. Uh, Ringo's colleagues stepped in to complete the story. The completed 48-page book, What If the Fantastic Four, Tribute to Mike Waringo, features, in addition to Waringo's art, artwork by the aforementioned Art Adams, uh, Paul Renault, Stuart Eminen, Cully Hamner, Alan Davis, David Williams, Sanford Green, Umberto Ramos, Scotty Young, Mike Allred, and Barry Kitson. It was released in June of 2008. Wow. So uh, that's worth looking at, I would say, if you get... Yeah. I, don't, it's a, I, I doubt it's too tough to get your hands on, but yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's out there, yeah. Now, we, uh, you know, we struggled, like we said, we were going to do a whole synopsis on Zero Hour, but that's <laughs> going to be its own large episode on its own. So we decided we'd talk about legacy heroes. This is something Chris and I have had. A few conversations about, uh, yeah, it, primarily with DC, but it, it applies to Marvel also. Uh, you know, Zero Hour. It was, it was a really earnest and widespread attempt at establishing legacy heroes for a lot of their classic properties. But, you know, we already had them. Wally West is a legacy hero, for example, and he was he mm -hmm. was very popular at the time and continues even to be popular today. Uh, you know, he took over Barry Allen, and and before this happened, you said Kyle Rayner take over for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, but basically, you know what I mean. This, this was a legacy. This was like the new, the new breed yep. or whatever. Um, and it, it, this was this was trying to zero hours trying to like reconcile all these fractured timelines, all these implied future timelines, as well as kind of like touch up a little problems left over from Christ's Infinite Earths. And they hope to attract a new generation of readers to a fresh batch of heroes, but still maintaining the intellectual property, which is. 
a phrase I hate saying, but that is what it is. Yeah, uh, you know, but basically, you know, you know, we still got a Green Lantern, but now he's Kyle Rayner. <laughs> so uh, a couple of changes happened after this, and I bet I bet we can think of a couple more. Uh, Connor Hawk, that was Oliver Queen's son. He was poised to take over Green Arrow after this. Uh, the original Starman's son, Jack Knight, took over the Cosmic Rod. And he had a, a well-received series where he wore very yeah. cool clothing and a, a leather jacket. Uh, indeed, the whole JSA was aged or killed. So some of their character, a lot of their characters, got a legacy brush-up. One of them I have here is Courtney Whitmore became the new Star Spangled Kid, aka Star Girl, in 1999. And there, there were a handful yeah. of others. Yeah, we had a new, uh, we had the Michael Holt, Mister Terrific, showed up. We right. had the second Doctor Midnight, uh, the Sandman's. I don't remember what uh, Sand was to Sandman. If he was a son or a grandson I, or a godson, a, I'm almost. Well, he was a son. He was a relative. I remember. because yeah. he had been genetically like that was that was part of the thing. Was he genetically turned into a thing that could become Sand? Sand was his. <laughs> yeah. He was basically you know, DC's Sandman. Uh, it was an interesting tactic. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a way to appeal to to casual newer readers and as well as you know paying tribute to the ones who have you know been reading absolutely because you're you're still in the family basically you're not uh, it's not the uh, hey uh, with issue you know five nothing you nothing you read before happened you know this is actually a continuation and there, there's visual synergy there too you know what I mean uh, sure you know, I mean Wally West's Flash doesn't really look a ton different than Barry Allen's his costume no it's just the different. eyes are different yeah. the eyes and like the belt is a little bit different and yeah. Kyle Rayner is quite different in a lot of ways but very similar in others same color same scheme. jewelry yeah yeah so it's uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. So it, you know, this was a business decision that actually uh, we think has some merit. Yes. Uh, now there have been other hints that this might happen. We have a uh, Dick Grayson taking over for Batman during, uh, you know, uh, we have Batman Prodigal, Prodigal storyline in, yeah. in the uh, 40s and the 90s, as well as you know, uh, after Battle of the Cal. Um, now it's you know kind of fallen to Damian Wayne to be the uh, you know the perhaps next Batman. Yeah. It's implied, um, but who knows? Yeah, because we did have that Batman six 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 issue where it showed Batman was that. Damien, yeah, and he, but he was also bald and acted a lot like Grant Morrison. So, who knows? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, by and large, especially of late, DC has kind of backed off from these legacy characters because, you know, the guys who are writing them now wanted them to be like they were when they were kids. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have you know Barry and Hal back in the uh, saddle. Um, and, you know, it also could be seen as complicating things if you have two people named The Flash. I know the first time I saw Two Flashes is when they did the uh, the Mike Parabek Justice Society miniseries where you had two Flashes and one of them had a frying pan on his head. It's like, yeah. what? <laughs> what? What is going on here? Yeah. And there were two Green Lanterns, but one of them had a huge collar and didn't dress in green. So uh, I was a little confused, but not so much that it actually turned me off. But mm. I could see how people would be, especially now with comics being, you know, four bucks a piece. Right. Uh, now, if we have these legacy characters going in and out and old characters coming in and out, uh, this would probably necess- necessitate more crisis events. Uh, more tearing everything down, more reboots, more rebuilding, more refiguring. And and we've definitely seen that more and more frequently uh, over the years. You know, now it used to be we had three crises in the 2000s. That's what I'm saying. You know, it used to be <laughs> you know once every 15 years, and it was like, oh, yep. we got to do it once every 10, you know, 10, 7. And now it's like it's Tuesday, time to reboot again. You know, That's so it. it's uh, 
it's you know it's it's too bad because it's they are complicating things to make them simpler and it's it's you know counterproductive almost what we've what we've said in our talks about it is our impression is that they made these legacy characters and because either they didn't sell a million copies out of the gate or because somebody else wanted to write the original character they back away from them and it's too bad because it is from what I've seen, and and now what Chris has seen, I mean, you and I bo- both talk. We talk to people that started picking up DC Comics with Rebirth or with mm-hmm. even with New Fifty Two, and they sure. love those versions of some of those characters. Yeah, uh, they may be foreign to us, you know. And one of the things that really opened my eyes to it were, was talking to Chris, who's just a little bit younger than me, you know, about four years younger, but. He he grew up at a time when Kyle Rayner and Wally West were those versions of the Flash and Green Lantern. That's your Those versions. are my guys, yeah. To me, that's strange. To me, yep. my versions will always be Wally West and Barry uh I'm sorry, Barry Allen and Hal Jordan, mm-hmm. which aren't even the original. The original versions are Alan Scott and, and, Jay, and Garrick. Jay Garrick. So it, it it works. You know what I mean? People do adopt the character, I think, that is closest to them in the time that they're reading it. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people like Wally West is a young black kid right now. Exactly. To a lot to a lot of people who watch the, I think that's the one on the show, right? It's the one on the show. I'm not. I don't, also I don't, from I don't remember whether the show fed the comic or the comic fed the show, but there was some. They happened roughly at the same time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so this Wally is foreign to a whole other generation of readers. And, and I remember my first impression was, how can that be if you know Iris West is white? You know, but it, they they came up with a workaround for it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not whatever whatever it is. Whether you know the old guard will always pish posh the new thing, and you know they will always say that'll never work. He's got to be X. He's got to be. It's not true. Legacy characters work, and and yep. we both. You know, I really wish. Uh, and you know, Marvel's guilty of this too in different ways. Sure. They don't really reboot the same way DC does. But we did a whole thing on the Clone Saga. Uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, where we, essentially the we same thing up, happened, you know? Yeah, we came up with it, that being more of like a cruel way to do it, because it kind of negates several generations of reading. Yeah. Where it's like, hey, everything you read really was wrong, because this guy wasn't supposed to exist. Yeah, you've been reading about the wrong guy the whole time, yeah. you know what I mean? They kind of yanked it out. But but that that was their attempt to try to, you know, come up with a newer, yeah. fresher character to be Spider-Man, and then they walked it back because they, you know, uh, Jerkins wanted to write Peter Parker. <laughs> uh, it's the kind of thing that we wish they would uh, stick the landing on it. You know, have some courage Certainly. for your convictions. Uh, you know, let it ride out. You know, maybe maybe six six issues isn't enough to determine whether a comic is going to be a smash success. But on the other, on the business side, maybe you don't have the luxury of waiting a lot longer. Yeah. So that's where we are with the legacy heroes and uh, what we think about them. And we'd love to know what you think. If you want to write to us and tell us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, we would love to read it. And uh, we might mention it on the show if we sure. can remember to do so. You can also <laughs> read our writings every week on weirdsciencedccomics.com. By the way, also keep sending in your suggestions for comics. We have a pretty long list, so you will probably wait to hear yours but we are keeping a list and we plan to unless it's one we really want to discuss that's true so sometimes (laughs) sometimes it merits immediate discussion sometimes there's something you know that we want to talk about so yeah they don't they don't go in exact order also some of the comics are really hard to get (laughs) so there's that too but 
we haven't given up on any of them. We're gonna we're gonna hit them all eventually because we're gonna be doing this until we're ninety seven. Uh, you can it's only a couple of years for us. That's right. I'm almost there, so it's uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to retirement. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And you can you should definitely go read Chris's personal blog that I mentioned earlier in the show. That's Chris is an infinite earth.blogspot.com. Just today, the day that we're recording, you finished your zero hour wrap up. Yes, the five part zero hour Chris is in time. That's uh, right. This is uh, a, the whole uh, mini series. So when we do discuss it, if you don't feel like spending the quarter for each issue, you can uh, just pop up my site and. Uh, Maybe follow along if you want, or not, or whatever. I, I would say I would say it'd be a great idea if you're not familiar with it. This is a great way to get familiar with the series. Uh, he's got you know pages or you know panels from the comic. It pretty much describes the comic explicitly. Chris gives his overview and even a little bit of like how it affected uh, the industry or you know the comics that would would come later. A little foreshadowing. And this time I did a lot of ephemera, so like there's a. Like uh, DC handed out a couple of freebies for yeah. the, for uh, our the uh, top secret and the that. zero month. Yeah, <laughs> I love the top secret thing where they like redacted, redacted. Uh, parallax <laughs> and like different words. I was like, oh come on, this is so stupid. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, so I have those posted next to the actual finished version, so you can see the uh, some of the differences in the art as well as the big reveals. Yeah, it's uh, it's the next best thing to have in the comic, folks. Maybe even better. So definitely go check that out and uh, next week we will be on weird comics history telling you all about zero hour and it's a beast so yeah i was gonna say that uh, i was excited because i got us a i set up a crossover with the greatest comic uh, podcast in the world and then you'd say who's that and i'd say us oh boy there you go <laughs> oh well we'll work it out another time well, yeah. well that's why we got to rehearse more but uh, that's right. anyway <laughs> i think that's all we got from this week pretty yeah. beefy episode you got anything else for him chris nope that'll do us well until next time want you to keep it on the treadmill cosmically he's the monarch of motion the sultan of speed the wizard of whistle yes indeed go from here to China in a no time flat Beat the speed of light And you can't beat that The flash, the flash Meet the mighty flash In a fight he'll smash